everyone, and welcome to the Rochester Public Power Hour. You are listening to our theme music provided courtesy of Vivid Pop Music. You can check out their music at vividpopmusic.com. I'm Mogini. And I'm Amanda, and we're part of the Rochester for Energy Democracy campaign of Metro Justice. On the Rochester Public Power Hour, we will share updates on our local movement for energy democracy, interview guests organizing movements for energy democracy across the country, and answer questions submitted by you, our audience. We hope that through these conversations, we illustrate the global scale of movements fighting for a more just and sustainable energy system. We also hope to learn from these movements so that our efforts in Rochester can be stronger. Amanda, we've had a lot of exciting new developments over the past few weeks. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Yes, we have. First off, we've had so many people interested in our work at RED that we're holding an orientation meeting on Zoom this Wednesday, July 8th, from 5.30 to 7.30. You'll get to meet the committee and attend a workshop that Jessica Azale from Alliance for a Green Economy is going to put on for us. If you plan to attend, make sure you RSVP at metrojustice.org on the upcoming events page so that we can get you the materials you need before then. In terms of other updates, many of you may have heard about the rate case going on with RG&E. And for those of you who don't know what a rate case is, rate case is a proceeding in which an investor-owned utility like RG&E makes a request to raise the rates with the Public Service Commission, the PSC. And so there have been environmental groups who have been making sure that there are environmental aspects of the agreement that's made that if they're going to raise rates to make improvements that they're also making green adjustments. So the rate case settlement was filed recently, so that's why you may have heard about it. And there are two parts to it, the gas and the electric side. And so because of the presence of environmental justice groups, there was a reduction in gas pipe infrastructure in the agreement, as well as $750,000 for heat pumps, which are a more efficient and therefore less expensive way to heat homes, which is really important for us here in Rochester. So Metro Justice is going to be joining as an intervener so that we can join those other environmental justice groups in making sure that there are green mandates in, in what goes forward in these rate cases. So while there were some small victories, there's still a long way to go in the electric case. And lastly, we told you last time about the shutoff notices. Those continue to happen and we continue to collect testimonials. You can check out our Facebook page to see those. And we are considering legal action through the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James. So we'll keep you posted as those things come into the news. Now that Amanda has filled you in on everything Red accomplished in the last few weeks, let's take a few steps back to discuss one of the reasons so many people are excited by the idea of having a public utility. Overall, a public, not-for-profit, locally and democratically governed utility allows for much lower rates, community say in how our rates are used to improve our city, the creation of more well-paying local union jobs, and community control over a green transition. Today, I'm going to dive into that last bit, a green transition. The accelerating climate crisis requires a rapid and global transition off of fossil fuels and onto renewable, carbon-free energy like solar, wind, and hydropower. We have not been, nor do we believe we will, See that transition happen at the scale and speed necessary for as long as we have private, for-profit, investor-owned utilities, 
or IOUs for short. From the very beginning of RED, we have asserted that public utilities are more capable of driving that transition. And the number one question people respond with is, why? Why can't IOUs provide the energy transition we need? And why would public utilities be better? Well, to answer that, let's first start with talking about where energy in Rochester actually comes from. So according to the report that RG&E files on its website in which it records the fuel sources used to generate our electricity, it shows that most of the electricity that RG&E transmits comes from carbon emitting natural gas, 42% to be exact, and 4% still actually comes from burning coal. 36% comes from nuclear, and while nuclear isn't an immediate contributor to climate change, its radioactive waste isn't safe for people nor healthy for the environment in the long term. Only 13% of electricity transmitted by RG&E is hydroelectric, only 3% comes from wind, and every other renewable source constitutes less than 1% of RG&E's energy supply. That means that overall, 46% or nearly half of all electricity transmitted to us by RG&E in 2018 came from carbon emitting sources that are responsible for climate change. So if we are to avert climate catastrophe and ensure a stable, healthy, and safe future for our families and generations to come, we need an entirely different picture. If we are to avert more natural disasters, food shortages, and pandemics, all of which will become more frequent and more deadly with accelerating climate change, we need to make significant progress towards changing our energy sources within the next 10 years. And we need to start right now. That makes a lot of sense to me, Mohini. So why aren't investor-owned utilities making this green transition? So the first thing to understand here is how investor-owned utilities or IOUs really work. Overall, an IOU's priority is profit for their shareholders, which is essentially a waste of money on the backs of ratepayers. Profit for shareholders is just money that makes them wealthy. None of it goes back to the community the utility serves, nor the utility itself. For example, RG&E guarantees its shareholders a 9% return on investment through revenue and the stock market. That means in 2018, RG&E reported more than $700 million in profits. All of that is money that did not get reinvested into maintaining the infrastructure, energy efficiency upgrades for homes, investing in a green energy transition, or investing in the community in other beneficial ways. Plus, in reality, their profit is probably higher because we're still waiting on data that will tell us whether compensation to shareholders is counted as an expense or profit. It should be included in profits, but corporations have a tendency towards mystical accounting. So the main goal is clearly making a profit, but can't IOUs make a green transition and still make a profit? Not really. They're sort of contradictory notions. So because utilities really prioritize maximizing profit, it means they will do everything in their power to prevent spending more money to avoid cutting into those profits that they guarantee to their shareholders. And if there are situations in which they must spend more money, utilities will do it by raising rates on us. Because again, they're not going to take it out of the profit they guarantee to their shareholders. We're seeing this play out with the current rate case that you mentioned with RG&E. RG&E is trying to win a 2.4% rate increase starting this October and a 5.2% rate increase each year after that. 
They claim it's to fund upgrading the aging electric distribution system, hire additional in-house staff for line work and other priorities, increase tree trimming to reduce outages, and the eventual installation of smart meters. But rg and &E doesn't actually have a funding problem. All of us should be seriously questioning why a company that generates upwards of 700 million in profit for its shareholders needs to charge us more to have the money to do the most basic of maintenance and upgrades. So it sounds like the way things are set up, shareholders benefit endlessly from IOUs while ratepayers have the burden of paying for any cost the energy company has. Exactly, that's exactly it. So even if utilities were to make a green transition, they would likely fund it by raising rates on us, basically forcing us to choose between affording our current need for electricity or heat or a habitable planet for our futures. That same profit motive that extorts ratepayers is also why IOUs like RG&E won't make the green transition in the first place. So it's likely that they won't even get there because a green transition means upfront investment. It means repairing electrical lines and building a lot more of them. It means investing in the building of more facilities that generate solar, wind, and hydroelectric power. It means investing in upgrading people's homes to use electric heat pumps to heat their homes instead of gas. Now, you and I actually value people living well, so we understand that this investment is worth it in the long term because it's absolutely necessary for us to have a safe and healthy future on this planet. But corporations that operate for profit, like IOUs, don't think that way. Their shareholders want their money, and they want it immediately. If climate catastrophe comes, they'll have their millions and their billions to try and get or build whatever they need to survive it. It's the rest of us that will suffer the most severe consequences. And not only do IOUs not invest in a green transition, they actually actively fight it. Remember in our last episode, Amanda, when you talked about how Avangrid, the parent company of RG&E, is one of Republican Senator and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's biggest election campaign contributor? I do. I wasn't thrilled to learn that me paying for a basic need means supporting a man that doesn't care about the needs of most of the people in this country. Yes. And guess what else he doesn't believe in? Global warming. McConnell has repeatedly and publicly stated that he is unsure global warming is a real threat. He opposed the Green New Deal and is very pro-gas. Then there's also the fact that Avangrid has a close relationship with Saudi Arabia to maintain a supply of cheap oil, which you also mentioned in our last episode. And that oil? That's just more carbon-emitting fuel that is causing climate change. So what we're seeing is IOUs lobbying against green energy and that lobbying isn't limited to New York State or Avangrid. It's a national global problem. They're actively fighting a green transition. And when they do make some changes to transition, it's on the backs of ratepayers who are already struggling to afford rates. We need a different option. So if investor-owned utilities are really just looking out for the investors, we need something that's looking out for the public. Exactly. And public utilities can be that different option. The biggest reason for why they're better is because public utilities are not for profit. They don't have to generate a bunch of excess revenue to be taken out of the utility in the community and given to shareholders. A public utility just has to generate enough revenue to meet operating costs and whatever other goals it has. 
And all of that revenue has to go back into the utility because it's a not-for-profit. This typically means lower rates, better maintenance of the grid, more substantial investment in green energy, and has the potential for ratepayers, or us, to have a say in how the utility uses the money we pay. For example, according to the American Public Power Association, ratepayers for public utilities in the U.S. pay about 13% less than ratepayers for IOUs in the U.S. Fairport Electric, which is a public municipal utility in a suburb of Rochester right next door, charges about 30% less than surrounding utilities like RG&E, and it gets most of its electricity from renewable, clean hydroelectric power. Anaheim Public Utilities in California, whose customer base is a similar size to RG&E's, charges rates that are 25% lower than the state average for rates in California. Anaheim Public Utilities is also aiming to get 98% of its energy from carbon-free sources, with 75% of that also coming from renewable sources like solar and wind by 2045. These are just two of the numerous examples of public utilities across the country. Taking away profit is one big reason why public utilities will make a rapid green transition possible while also lowering rates for ratepayers. But there's a second reason that has more to do with governance. So in IOUs, decisions are made by distant shareholders based on what generates the most profit for them. With a public utility, we could create a democratic governance structure in which decisions are made by the community that actually pays for the utility. So locally, if we replaced RG&E with a public utility, we could make it a public utility that is a ratepayer cooperative. Anyone who pays for services would be a member owner of the utility. Us ratepayers would then elect representatives to serve on the governing board and other stakeholders like worker unions could have representation too and those representatives would be accountable to us. This way, we would have a say in what our rates are, what sources of energy the utility uses, we could create local jobs that pay well with solid benefits and are unionized, and we could decide how the rates we pay are reinvested to expand green energy capacity. And we would, because where else is that money going to go if not to lift up our community? We're talking millions of dollars here that we could have a say over that doesn't have to get paid out to shareholders. The best part is, this is so attainable. Amanda, you laid out the process to win this in our last episode. Plus, remember the amount of fuel we're talking about? Locally, 46% comes from natural gas or coal. With a public utility that we control, we could set a goal to transition 5% of that to renewable sources a year, and we could be at 100% carbon-free in less than 10 years. We don't have to wait as far out as 2045, and frankly, we can't afford to wait. We'll be back in a moment with today's guests, Timothy Denherter-Thomas and Michelle Wenderlich. Enjoy a bit of Talking Heads burning down the house in the meantime. Michelle and Timothy. 
Michelle was our guest last episode, and they told us how they got involved in the Berlin Energy Roundtable, as well as Community Power in Minneapolis, which is the focus of our interview today. Timothy grew up in New Jersey and then moved to the Twin Cities of Minnesota in 2005. He has focused on doing energy work from a perspective of energy development and justice for over a decade and is also a founder of a clean energy cooperative called Cooperative Energy Futures. Timothy, tell us about how and why you got involved in a referendum campaign for a municipal utility in Minneapolis and the organization that came out of that effort, Community Power. I had actually been working first as a high school student and then as a college and post-college activist in Minnesota. Um, I actually started in my work in, in New Jersey, focusing on the energy system, climate change, and really how we structured our economy, because I think the tie between all of the extractive and destructive ways that we run our energy system ecologically has always been really clear to me in terms of how that's also related to the extractive and destructive ways that our economy is, is hitting communities. And so was working in South Minneapolis around a number of campaigns to accelerate energy efficiency, fighting the development of a transmission line through the neighborhood, power plant issues, accelerating renewable energy development, a variety of things like that. Uh, and was just, you know, in a community conversation where it was introduced that there was this franchise agreement coming up in Minneapolis, which is a 20-year, or at least used to be a 20-year agreement between the city and the utility to manage energy service in the public right-of-way. And, you know, realized along with some other environmental justice activists that that was an opportunity to put pressure on the city and put pressure on the utilities. And one of the main channels uh, for that was exploring public power. So that was the, the launching point for a long journey into public power and community control of utilities. Timothy, you mentioned the franchise agreement as being one of the precipitating events that led to the formation of the municipal utility campaign in Minneapolis. What other events led to that and what issues in the community was it addressing? Yeah, you know, I would say that at, at the time that our campaign at the time called Minneapolis Energy Options was exploring this issue, there was a large number of energy issues impacting the community, but I would say for most people in the community, they were under the radar, not really noticed as this is something we can do anything about. You know, part of that is just the chronic issue of energy poverty and energy burden that many people in our community face. Uh, you know, this is true in Minneapolis, it's true in many parts of the United States that, you know, low income individuals are spending a, a really unmanageable portion of income just paying energy bills. You know, I think average low income in, in Minnesota is like eight or nine percent. And there are definitely households that are spending 20 or even 30 percent of their income paying for energy bills. Uh, and since then, you know, we've we've broken that analysis out into how much is that driving payday lending and other forms of debt debt entrapment in households and how does that fuel into evictions and various things like that. Um, so that was you know an, an ongoing thing that organizers of the campaign and many people in community had run into or experiencing, you know, but it was just kind of like a, this is just the way it is condition. You know, then you have energy infrastructure issues. So there was a, a set of transmission lines that were built in a number of the most uh, dense, low income and people of color concentrated communities in the Twin Cities um, that was, uh, you know, brought concerns about, you know, health, uh, disruption of households and also local economic activity uh, and just really expose people to the kind of lack of care and lack of interest in really responding to community needs 
that the utility was displaying. And then also, you know, every once in a while we have explosions of natural gas pipelines or, or facilities which cause damage and sometimes death and, you know, a variety of just those things that for so long have been normal, but people were experiencing day to day. And then of course, you know, climate change and the long-term air pollution issues, which have been on people's mind. But I think tying that into, we actually have a say in how our utility runs uh, was not necessarily at the forefront. But, you know, in Minneapolis, the city government had just done like a climate action plan process for the city and pretty quickly realized that 66% of the carbon emissions in the city at the time were directly from the natural gas and electric utilities. And the city at the time had really no say over what happened to that. So it's kind of like, well, we're going to solve climate change, but we can't do anything about two thirds of the problem. And so I think drawing on those lived experience issues that people in our community were facing, along with uh, the longer term questions about how do we respond to climate change, really raised the, the issue of how do we get better behavior from energy utilities and get a relationship to energy utilities that really meets people's needs. Yeah, we definitely see similar things in this cold climate in Rochester with really high energy bills and people not being happy with how it's run, but not feeling like they necessarily have the power to change it. So we're trying to change it. So what were the goals that you developed for the campaign in order to address those issues? Yeah, you know, there's a, a variety of goals and we've come to talk about them with this acronym we use, CLEAR, uh, that we want to, an energy system that is clean, local, equitable, affordable, and reliable. And so really talking about the energy system that we want is having all of those aspects. And so, you know, that includes a transition to 100% renewable energy, but also doing that in a way that is, is local and concentrating and focusing on locally based and community owned energy assets. That also has in the affordability and, and equity component of, you know, energy efficiency and making sure that everyone has access to a comfortable, safe, healthy place to live. And a lot of it has over time tied in that housing equity and housing justice piece of it as well. You know, obviously the other pieces of it around reliability are uh, absolutely critical as well. And, and I think as we've had violent weather and various other things that have disrupted our grid, I think it's, it's also raised people's attention about the importance of resilience when we're talking about decentralization and localization of energy. And so, you know, with all of that set of goals for what the energy system looked like, um, I'd say really starting out in the campaign that launched in late 2011, early 2012, and really became a much more public thing in 2013, the goal was really, we as a community need to have much more power to achieve those outcomes. And we need to do that by exploring municipalization whether that ultimately results in a municipal utility, which was a goal of many people in the campaign, or simply puts utilities on notice as, you know, you can't just stop paying attention to and completely ignoring community needs. You really have to respond and show how you're going to achieve these objectives. Otherwise, we as a city and as a community are going to chart a path that doesn't include you. I'm wondering any conversations that you guys had about ensuring a just energy transition when it comes to, you talked about energy access, but talking about jobs and how those discussions informed your work. You know, in our initial campaign in Minnesota, the way we have to go about exploring municipalization 
is through a ballot referendum that gives the city the authority to explore municipalization. So when we initially ran this campaign, we weren't necessarily at the stage of, this is exactly how it's gonna run, this is where we're going, this is how it's gonna work. It was more like we need the, the legal power to begin that long and, and developed process of feasibility and planning and really understanding what it would look like. And so we were very aware of the examples around the country of how publicly owned utilities, municipal utilities, have performed much better in terms of affordability, in terms of energy access, and in terms of uh, hiring and job conditions. And you know, among cities in Minnesota, the city of Minneapolis has a high level of attention to the long history of racial disparity in hiring in a variety of industries, including the, the energy sector. So, you know, I'd say at the time, particularly the employment disparity was on our minds, but not something that we had a clear action plan for. But since the campaign in 2013, that has been a much more, uh, an activity around which direct action has been taken and is being taken and is also revealing the, the resistance or lack of willingness to innovate that utilities are, are displaying along with a variety of other actors. And how was the campaign organized, structurally speaking? Like who was involved and how are decisions being made? Again, around the original campaign, 2011 through 2013, it was a really small group. We had about a dozen organizations actively involved, a steering committee, 10 of us, you know, working through what are the kind of key turning points in this campaign. Uh, A lot of the public engagement and public outreach was through Field Canvas that one of the organizations around the table ran and supported. Uh, We also did a number of neighborhood meetings, like attending existing neighborhood association meetings and basically building public awareness and public support through talking with this probably three or four dozen neighborhood associations across the city over the span of our main campaign year. And then, you know, also the social media effort. So we had one primary staff person, a couple of people part-time, 20 or 30 really active volunteers, and then through that process built a a base of about 5,000 people across the city that were, you know, aware, supportive, and and pushing for this. Um, But I, I, you know, I do think, again, because at the time, energy issues were not really prominently on people's radar. I think so much of what we were really doing during that initial campaign was just raising the profile of energy and energy justice in the city. The thing that I'm in many ways most excited about about what happened was it it resulted in a situation where the news cycle was, you know, multiple times a week coverage of and discussion of, well, what should our energy system look like? And, you know, the utility in all of their responses to try and stop anything from happening, also having to communicate to their customers around this concept that, oh, maybe there's a different way of, of doing business, even if, of course, the utilities communication is don't do that. We're the best at all ways that this could possibly work out. And I, I, so I think, you know, more than anything, the conversation opened up a different way of talking about energy and, and a sense among, you know, again, not everyone in the city, but definitely thousands of people that this is a conversation worth having. And so, yeah, structurally, it's a small group of organizations, decision-making by 
networks of individuals. We did have a couple of different working groups that were structured to enable more people to get involved in different roles. And a lot of the initial engagement was, you know, the ways for people to get involved was participating in the door knocks, the phone banks, and, and coming out to the city council meetings and other public meetings, including neighborhood association meetings to, to build support for the campaign. Great. So you talked a little bit about how you did the community organizing. What was your plan to win? Like what other tactics did you use and who were your targets? Um, Around municipalization campaigns in Minnesota, the process that you are legally required to use is that the city council has to decide to put an initiative on the ballot. And then the voters have to approve of that initiative in order to give the city the authority to proceed into exploring municipalization. So it has literally been set up to be the most cumbersome and absurd process possible. And in fact, you know, the utility did, utilities, I should say, we have a gas and electric utility, did their best to muddy the waters by arguing that this was a decision to form a municipal utility before there were any of the numbers, while of course you can't get any of the numbers until you get this. Uh, resolution passed. So really the strategy was number one, to get the city of Minneapolis, the city council, to commit to put this on the ballot. Um, And in the process of convincing the city to put it on the ballot, to build up enough of a base of support across the city to then win the ballot initiative. And we timed this in conjunction with the city election. So this very quickly became city council municipal election issue as well. And and I think that's another one of the really powerful strategies that we've used throughout is just tying these moments of a big decision to election cycles so that it really requires candidates to take a stand and also get educated and then follow through on those issues. So the vast majority of our time in the campaign was really about trying to convince the city council. We launched the campaign in December of 2012 in a public way that we'd been coalition building for about a year. Before that, we launched in December of 2012, and I'd say really until June of 2013, really all we were doing was talking with city council members, building public support, getting members of the public to push city council members to actually put this on the ballot. And, you know, a lot of that was direct meetings, phone calls. We also did a big social media blast, basically targeting a couple of the key council members to get them off the fence. And I think initially the council was really wanting to like push this off into the future, you know, do a study on it, not really dig in. And I think tried to quiet the organizing effort by approving funding for a energy pathway study that actually ended up being pretty useful in terms of laying out the different options. But we were successful in generating enough pressure that the city decided to take the next step, which was to hold a public hearing at which they would hear members of the public and then decide whether or not to put this on the ballot. That was in June. The public hearing was scheduled for August 1st. Basically, the six to eight week period between that decision by the city council and the actual city council hearing, basically everything blew up. Some of the members of our campaign team, you know, have been working on this for, on these sorts of issues for 40 years, trying to get utility attention. You know, I've, I've been doing this sort of work for, at that point, I guess it was uh, six, seven years trying to get utility attention. 
and really getting nothing. Within a week of this announcement, we had Centerpoint Energy, our natural gas utility, calling up this tiny little scrappy grassroots campaign and saying they wanted to negotiate. And I think for me, that was when this campaign changed from, oh, this is just another campaign, another fight, another thing that I'm involved in doing to try and move the energy system to, oh, wait a second, the utilities actually care when you threaten their right to earn millions of dollars of profit, which I mean, like when you say it like that, it's like, no, duh, right? But I think from that point on, it was really shifting to winning public perception of the issue and helping people understand at a large scale, even more than before, what is really at stake. Uh, and also having to negotiate back and forth with the utilities to try and get them to commit to things and put forward positions because, you know, we really didn't know what, whether the city council would approve this. And, you know, we increasingly, just because of the limited resourcing, limited capacity of our campaign, we're also somewhat concerned about, would we actually have the capacity to win? If we put initiative on the ballot, would we win it? Because that's really important. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that was useful right off the bat was putting the utilities in a position where they had to respond, they had to show what they were going to do. And so I think from that point, we started to ad adopt, and, and I think over time have much more consistently adopted a strategy of continuing to put up challenges and things that the utility has to respond to. Whereas I feel like in much of my previous organizing history around energy, it's always been communities having to respond to the last thing that the utility is proposing. And so I think there's almost like this key shift in, you know, who's on defense that we started to initiate from that point in the campaign. And, you know, I, I, we can talk about this more a little bit later, but I think, you know, in many ways, we were not ready and we didn't win a lot of our immediate and tangible goals in that campaign in 2013, but we built so much more power and changed the relationship in a way that has set us up really powerfully for the fights that have happened over the last six years and now even bigger things that are coming up now. Wow, it's amazing to hear about that shift in power and very inspirational. And I'm hoping we feel that way someday here in Rochester. That's obviously a big outcome from your work. What were some of the other short-term and long-term outcomes in terms of climate and green energy, energy access rates, and the energy system as a whole? So I'd say the most immediate and tangible thing that we, that we secured, um, we didn't get on the ballot. We did get a commitment from Minneapolis City Council to pursue energy alternatives initially very vaguely, but including in the renegotiation of the franchise agreement. So what we, one thing that we did get in the franchise agreement is instead of a, instead of being a 20 year agreement, which was our previous term, the city council negotiated a 10 year agreement that be, can be canceled after five years with a one year notice if there is super majority approval on the city council. So it's just a much shorter term and much more flexible agreement. It gets a little complicated in terms of what a franchise actually means in terms of the utilities security because they're they're legally in place under Minnesota law, regardless of whether you have a franchise agreement or, or not. But the city could cause a whole lot of pain to the utility in its day-to-day -day operations without that shared agreement. And it it also potentially sets the foundation for how compensation would be structured in a, in a municipalization proceeding. So just having that be a lot shorter, it keeps the utilities much more on their toes. 
And the city also negotiated what uh, is called the Minneapolis Clean Energy Partnership, which is a new decision-making structure that has four representatives of the city government and two from each of the electric and gas utilities that is basically charged with guiding the operations of the energy system in the city of Minneapolis to achieve an energy vision, which I mean, the utilities basically said, yes, we are committing to help the city achieve these carbon goals, these clean energy goals, and a broader energy vision that is oriented towards universal access and affordability and all of that. Now, of course, I, I think the utilities very much hoped that that would be a statement we can sign on to and then not have to do very much. And so the challenge has been using that structure of the Minneapolis Clean Energy Partnership, as well as the community advisory body that we were able to push for and secure called the Energy Vision Advisory Committee to then advance various wins. And so that all came long after the original campaign in 2013. But over the last few years, I would say more than anything, we've gotten a city government that is much more of a champion than they ever were before. And really largely through the city's effort, we have secured progress on energy data disclosure and benchmarking of residential, multifamily, and commercial buildings. There are now policies in place that both when you buy a property, but also when you rent, you have to have access to information about the energy cost of those properties, basically to factor into how do you decide where you're going to live and, and factoring that into affordability. There are new like sustainable building policies we managed to secure through the Energy Vision Advisory Committee and this much more fl flexible franchise agreement, a increase in our franchise fee, which amounts to about $2.8 million a year that is now mostly, and that's another long story, being spent on programs that uh, support new energy efficiency and renewable energy incentives for users in the city. And the city has also now hired a staff person who is intervening in the Public Utilities Commission to challenge the utilities and attempt to coordinate on positive things with the utilities on a variety of other goals. And one of the other big things that we're still in progress on, but that the city has been a big champion and slowly gotten our gas utility to express willingness to launch inclusive financing for energy efficiency and potentially solar using the pay-as-you-save model uh, so that really anyone in the city, homeowners or renters, could access energy upgrades in their homes without having to make any payments up front or take out debt, which is, again, it's been very, very slow going, but it, it's something that I think we wouldn't be able to achieve if the utilities didn't feel like they had to at least maintain the appearance of helping the city achieve these goals. And I, again, I, I don't feel all that great about the tangible progress or how much the utilities have actually moved, but I do feel like the city government is in a position where they are looking at the utilities not as the source of expertise and also as a government that is very frustrated with the amount of delay and sometimes direct deception that the utilities are bringing to the table. Um, and that the city has now launched, you know, a 100% clean energy policy that it is seeking non-utility strategies to achieve. And I think really pushing the envelope on doing real projects that actually contribute to access affordability and community economic development. So I feel like more than anything, we have achieved to a substantial degree a, a city that is an ally in moving the energy system. 
and that is looking at all of the levers kind of alongside alongside us uh, as as a network of grassroots groups to make change. Yeah, I'm sure it feels slow going, but hearing it all together right there is really, for people who are at the start of that process, is super inspirational. Just a few more questions, something for both of you. We've heard some of the obstacles that you faced, but kind of wondering if there are any that stand out in your mind as ones that we could learn from as we start this process. One thing I'll just add on that is helping people understand the energy system and feel like they can have a say in how it should work. One of the programs that we run ran pretty intensively for about two years was a series of house parties and community meetings that we called Powerful Conversations, uh, which was kind of like an interactive discussion and presentation-based format for talking about, well, how does the energy system work both physically, but then also like economically and in terms of its decisions and like having people sort of have a discussion about how does that relate to the things that they see every month, you know, with their power lines, their utility bills, all of that sort of thing. And I think that that's one of the key questions is how do we empower people to have the context and also the feeling of authority to really step into having a say on the system. Uh, I would maybe bring up a couple things which are, first, I think in both of these examples, the the orientation of the local government was really a deciding factor. And it comes down to if they're opposed to it, it's really difficult to make progress in the way that you see. And so some form of like inside outside game was also important in both campaigns very directly. And so there were, in Minneapolis and in Berlin, political party support or council members who were very supportive and were helping the campaign know about what was happening within the city. And like that's also one of the reasons why really getting strong progressives in um, the local government is important. And, you know, you could do both at once. I mean, I think that's something Community Power has done as well, is really intervene in the local political election cycle and do a lot of campaign forums of local politicians to really elevate the issues and make, you know, energy from this wonky thing into a social justice issue, because it is. And I would say another thing is that engagement and coalition work is really important. And I think both campaigns in different ways, but did suffer from not having quite large enough of a coalition in the end. And so in Berlin, that was the outer suburbs that were more working class and less traditional um, voters on, on environmental issues, not outreaching to them quite as much as they could have and not emphasizing the social issues quite as much as they could have. Uh, so that was an important thing, definitely. And so really doing the time to build very strong coalitions is definitely important. Those are the two biggest ones, I would say. Yeah, they resonates. We're in a coalition um, for the state, but especially you mentioning input from rural communities um, is something that we're always having discussions about as well. And then lastly, what's next for public power for both of you? What are you currently working on or next steps? Oh, where to start? Well, I am very focused on how to scale up community ownership of renewable energy. And I'm very focused on that, you know, both in my my work as general manager of Cooperative Energy Futures, but also in a lot of my conversations with the city of Minneapolis and other public policy spaces. Um, Because I think there is really a, a huge transformational opportunity 
when local governments that are backed by a deep base of community support start to see their role not just as we need to commit to and find an implementation plan to 100% renewable energy, but we need to do that in a way that reflects energy democracy and helps uh, build wealth for people in our community and people in neighboring communities, particularly low-income folks and, and folks of color. And I think there's a lot of business models out there that local governments and community-based groups particularly through cooperatives, but also other mechanisms can harness to roll that out. And, you know, the, the opportunities with wind and solar are becoming quite attractive and the potential pushback around corporate renewables creates kind of a moment or a space to advance more of that local ownership. I also think there's a huge tie-in and one of the things that we're working on locally is the connection to housing justice and you know, particularly now with the COVID-19 crisis, people starting to understand how both the indoor and outdoor air quality impacts that fossil fuels in a dirty energy system create are contributing to the health vulnerabilities in this crisis, but then also you know, the inefficiency and the lack of control that many renters have over their housing contributes to the economic vulnerability in this crisis. And I think it's, opening up potential to really start discussing what does it mean to make an energy system and a, and a housing system and a set of basic needs supports in communities to feed resilience. And one of the things we've been doing at Community Power is working with a network of about a dozen community-based organizations over the last year to build shared context and come up with a shared vision around energy justice in utility programming and in energy efficiency programming. And I, I think that that is, it's sinking deep roots into a new way that we can work together and take all of the things that ought to be obvious but have never been obvious in the public sphere about how renters and low-income folks have been shut out of the opportunity to participate for decades and make that mainstream and a thing that we're talking about all the time. So those are a couple of the things that I, I think are big opportunities. And I also think sometime in the next few years, we're going to be in a place to put municipalization back on the table in a real way and have much more mass and power behind that, having had the experience of the last, at this, that point, probably 10 years than when we first ran the campaign. I'm definitely excited about that. So yeah, I'm in, I'm in Minneapolis and doing work with Community Power part-time, not right at the moment, but in general. So some of the things are the same, but the first thing for me is I have to finish my dissertation, which is on both of these campaigns. And after that is done, I'm really excited about joining and campaigning and organizing around energy justice in combination with social justice and racial justice and environmental justice and also participatory democracy and really trying to change the vision of what's possible. And I think we're, I mean, definitely in an inflection point with COVID and with climate crisis and a lot of other things to go in either a really bad direction or a really good direction. And so I think, you know, all of the campaigns that we're doing and all of the organizing work that we're doing really has to connect more deeply with each other and build deeper relationships and really actually find ways to support each other when really bad stuff happening, but also, um, you know, find a lot of new leaders who are connecting in, in their communities. And the most important 
and exciting things for me are doing work around Green New Deal type visions. And now I think how we are responding to COVID and really fighting for a people's bailout and things like rent cancellation and utility bill suspension would be things that would be game changers in terms of our political ability to respond and also people's and businesses' ability to survive. So I think just connecting more deeply and building more emancipatory visions into the future. Amazing. Thank you both for the work that you do and for sharing your experiences with us. It's been great. Thank you for having us and good luck. Thanks for tuning into our show today. We want to hear your comments and questions about our content and public power so that we can address them on our next episode. You can submit your thoughts to us on Twitter at Metro Justice with the hashtag Rock Public Power Hour or email us at rockpublicpowerhour at metrojustice.org. See you next time. Cheers. Mm-hmm.